Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am your host, Ben Myers, here with my co-host, Steve Cameron. Steve, I've been uh, checking out LinkedIn lately. You're basically, uh, you're making hires every single day. What's going on uh, there at uh, the Cameron Stevens shop? That's a good observation. Yeah, we're uh, we're actively growing and hiring, and it's pretty exciting times. We've made a few strategic hires in the last three, four months. I'm, I assume you're referring to our latest uh, originator, VP Origination. Of course, and the the other guy, Brad Wise, <laughs> the wise Brad choice. Wise. That yeah, you the made. wise choice. Yeah, the we hired. Uh, we're growing out west, and we've had an office in Western Canada for the last few years, but just brought in uh, a senior executive to help really run and, and grow that office. So we're really excited. Finally, we can fly again and uh, go out and be an active part of building the business. So, well, someone that times. flies through their stuff <laughs> when you send it to them. <laughs> Is the sponsor of our show. I love it, man. The award-winning Nizo Studios. You're, you're Who, flying high tonight today with that haircut. Yes, thank I you. I wish you guys could thank see you. Ben right now. Yes, he went the, full mohawk, full mullet. It's a bit of a mullet. It's a bit of a mullet, but it's stylish. Just like the work done by the award-winning Nizo Studios, the premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit nizostudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling taking the building's industry sales process by storm. Not bad. Speaking of live, we're recording live once again. We're in uh, my backyard this time. And if uh, you hear a little bit of gardener noise, we apologize. The uh, The neighbor decided to start his uh, lawn care routine just as we started recording. But hey, it's part of the beauty of being back and being outside. And um, we got a great guest today, Ben. We really have great. a guest. We have I'm a excited. guest. I'm excited. Yes. So why don't you read the bio of this guest? Uh, our first, uh, our first non-developer guest in a while. In a while, we've had That's we had right. Barbara Lawler and we had uh, uh, Dana, Dana from, from CMHC, CMHC Matt Slutsky, Buzz Buzz Home. Correct. But this this guy is unique and uh, really special. I'm excited to have uh, Councillor Brad Bradford today. Join us on the Toronto Under Construction podcast. For those of you who don't know Mr. Councillor, apologies, Bradford, he is an urban planner and politician. He was elected to the Toronto City Council following the 2018 Toronto Municipal Election and represents Ward 19 Beaches, East York. Bradford was appointed a commissioner of the Toronto Transit Commission Board by City Council on December 13, 2018. He also sits on Council Committee, the Budget Committee, and the Planning and Housing Committee. Prior to his election, Bradford worked as a planner for the City of Toronto and private firms Dialogue in Toronto and Perio Plan in Edmonton. He holds a Bachelor of Environmental Studies degree in urban and regional environments from York University and a master's degree in urban planning from the University of Waterloo. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thanks for joining us. 
Great to be here with you, fellas, and getting the the backyard experience in Toronto with the lawn care and sunshine. It's uh, it's a beautiful afternoon. It really is. Did I did I did I did I get the bio okay? Any any? Uh... No, no. I mean, it's pretty long. It's pretty obnoxious, but uh, no, it's pre- not. Appreciate you going through it, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been quite a quite a ride uh, over the past couple of years, and and moving from sort of the the private practice side, and then into the public sector, and now on the political side, uh, you get a you get a different perspective with each move, and uh, learning as I go, making mistakes, but uh, we're all trying to do our best best work here in Toronto. For sure, we'll 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 we'll, we'll get you to expand a little bit on that, but uh, I am a cons- constituent of yours but that you did not know before I we, just found uh, out uh, we started the podcast and I was uh, a constituent of yours up until December last year as well wow. sorry, to, sorry to lose you yeah, yeah. It looks like you're doing fine here though <laughs> no. I miss you guys yeah, yeah. so I, I was mentioning to you when when you arrived I was I, I called your I tried to call your wife because I wanted to get some dirt on you some inside stuff but I had I, I guess you know it's been I hadn't updated my contact in some time but I did look to see you know I, I used to take really detailed notes on every single person I added to my contacts list, and it says April 2012 met Catherine and her friend Brad from Dialogue. Oh. So, so it was kind of interesting that Life you were you're still in the in the friend zone nine years ago. So yeah, we're still still friendly, and, <laughs> and we've built on that foundation uh, a decade later, and we've got our uh, our new baby girl Briar. She is six months old today, so oh, a lot has changed since 2012, yeah, but yeah, exactly. uh, it's all good. Exactly. Do you guys live in the ward as well? Yeah, we're uh, we're kind of right around the Danforth, Danforth Woodbine, Maine, Stevenson Park for those of you in the East End. So it's uh, it's an area experiencing a lot of change. Uh, it's a great neighborhood. Uh, lots of folks really involved in the community. That's what really attracted us to it in the first place. Like many young uh, young folks, uh, I'm 34. Uh, people looking to kind of settle in Toronto. We were looking across the entire city. You know, 640 square kilometers. There was no particular jurisdiction that we wanted to be in. Um, but we went out on a Thursday night, took the subway out, landed at Eastland Park, uh, and they have a spectacular market there by the Danforth East Community Association. You saw the music and the families and all the vendors, and we just said, you know what, let's turn off all the other listings in the other areas. Let's focus on on landing here, making a life in the East End. And, uh, you know, I think it took us like six months because this was back in 2016, I think. So it was, you know, always challenging to to get in. So, so you moved into the ward prior to being the, uh, the councillor... Oh yeah, so yeah. You, like so you were award nineteen guy prior to being award nineteen guy. Well, nice. I think at that time it was uh, would have technically been ward thirty two, and uh, there was a lot of chaos around the last municipal <laughs> election, and then it was ward thirty seven, and then it became ward nineteen. So nice. a bit of a genesis there, but I certainly didn't have my head in that space uh, at the time. Okay. Uh, so so. so why, why don't we rewind it then? So you're, you've you've got your master's degree from Waterloo. Sure. You're you're, you're ready to go start the career. Hold on, I got. I, I was like asking, were, were you? Born and raised Toronto, Ham- Hamilton, Ontario. Hamilton. Yeah, a little down the Queen Queen Lizzie way there, and right, uh, right. Toronto. Toronto is relatively new. I can't with that it. hat and, and those shoes. I was like, this guy is from Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, that's right. True enough. I, True to form. Yeah, bike. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, you know, I'm not that guy. I going to say, oh, I've been in Toronto my entire life, born born and bred. That that's not the case. There's been a bit of a journey. Okay. But I think that reflects a lot of Torontonian stories and why Absolutely. the city continues to be so attractive to so many people and people want to come here. Guelph, Ontario. Guelph, Ontario. Oh, that's Guelph. where I'm from. Yeah. 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 So, so you so so. 
your was your first job at this company in Edmonton then? Well, so that was um, you know that was a bit of a I was out there for five months or so during grad school. And the interesting thing about Waterloo, uh, alma mater, great program for for planners, uh, but they have a very robust uh, co-op program for the undergrads. So at the time when you're trying to gain experience, you're actually competing with you know fourth year students who frankly have way more experience and hands-on stuff working in consulting or development or municipalities. And you go out after your first year, you want to land something for the summer, and uh, you're up against all these fourth years that are frankly way more qualified and effective and better at the job than you. So, uh, you know, prof there, Mark Seasons, uh, connected me with a shop out in Edmonton. And I was at the McKernan Belgravia station right behind there and rode the Edmonton LRT nice. uh, right into the bottom of our building. It was pretty sweet. I loved Edmonton, loved living out west for the kind of five months there. Granted, I was never there in the winter, uh, but it was pretty nice <laughs> during the summer and, uh, you know, a great opportunity to see how planning is done uh, out in that part of the country. It is a little bit different. Uh, I forget all of the acronyms, but they're not the same as what we have here. Not, I think it's Municipal no. Development Plans, MDPs. Yeah, and it's, and different, it's different in British Columbia as yeah. well. So, yeah. it's, so uh, I was pleasantly surprised how walkable downtown Edmonton was. It, it is. And, and actually, like, again, the LRT experience and then... F- Funnily enough, when I was at Dialogue, we were working on the southeast to west Edmonton LRT expansion, which was separate. But the line I was riding, you know, if you were on transit, it was phenomenal. And I think it was like 42 bucks a month uh, or like $45. It was embarrassingly cheap, uh, extremely affordable. And yeah, they had a downtown 4th Street Market or something, uh, lots of good restaurants, new buildings coming on. And it seemed like there were people who were excited about that as well, (laughs) like like not so against it. It seemed like there was some enthusiasm. So... Again, I haven't done the winter there, um, but I did appreciate the the high sun in the evenings, the long daytime, the access to the outdoors, the the river valley, spectacular. Uh, Edmonton's a good spot. Yeah, and so I, I did write a question, which I thought was funny, but maybe you don't. <laughs> you put on your LinkedIn that you worked on an affordable housing study in Red Deer. Is is, is that is that needed? Isn't everything in Red Deer already affordable? <laughs> well, I think it's all relative in your your context and your definition of affordability, and that's where policy gets into trouble when we're trying to define that. But you know, Red Deer County. It's funny that you looked at my LinkedIn. I haven't looked at my LinkedIn in a long time, but I guess that's on there. Uh, you know, it's um, the due diligence. Yeah, there you go. I'm a research guy. You guys have questions and papers printed out. It's very good. Very impressive. Uh, Red Deer County has a uh, shadow population of a lot of migrant workers that come into Red Deer County for farming and agricultural purposes during different times of the year. And so you have this shadow population that's not necessarily accounted for in the census, certainly not planned for with respect to planning or housing situations, but actually has a big demand and need on on housing, um, particularly temporarily throughout the year. So we were doing a lot of work on the shadow population, trying to understand how people come in and out of Redger County and how we could plan better to support them because they're uh, they're a critical part of the economy and the agricultural workforce out there. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a study, uh, I don't know, probably going back 10 years now on the Fort, Fort McMurray and how they're, you know, at the time the population was just going bananas and every single new house that was getting built, they were putting in a basement apartment and they, they just couldn't uh, gauge the secondary market for for people because so many people would come in and, and you know and work in the uh, on the on the oil patch for you know six nine months and disappear and it was just this crazy transient population but 
you know, they wanted to build apartments, but everyone had two vehicles, one work truck and one regular truck. And then the ATVs <laughs> and yeah. the skidoos and all the toys. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so, so parking became a massive issue for, for people. And yeah, just the things that you, you don't think about when you typically do downtown Toronto housing studies. For sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Absolutely. So we ended up at uh, Dialogue. So, and that was that your first, you know, full time job at a at a university? Yeah, I wasn't even finished. Um, that was the time is you know when the opportunity is in front of you, uh, you kind of go and seize it. And I was very fortunate to land there. Great shop, uh, good leadership on the on the planning side. And um, I was working on lots of different types of projects. They did a lot of sort of campus master planning. Uh, they did a lot of, uh, you know, we did the proximity guidelines for development adjacent to rail corridors. Yes, they, I got that one down. It, That's my favorite one. Okay, <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because at the time, um, you know, fresh out of school, finishing my thesis while, while I'm working there. Uh, wouldn't recommend that route, but uh, in any case, we got it done. Um, but, you know, that file comes across a desk, and it's not necessarily um, what you think about in planning in a conventional sense, but then you start to unpack it. And, you know, this country was built on the railroad, right? And so you have railroads going through every major urban center. And, of course, the guidelines or the regulations uh, that, you know, uh, CN or CP or the railways have um, that pre-exist the development challenges in the context that we're living in, you know, it's sort of that, I forget what it is, 30-meter blanketed setback situation. Yeah, uh, and it's the same thing whether you're, you know, out in the middle of the prairies or you're in downtown Toronto. And yet the way folks are using that corridor, the way trains are moving through those spaces are a lot different, right? That's a dynamic changing environment. So the idea that you have to prepare for a 90 kilometer an hour derailment out in the prairies or something uh, is the same thing as how you would treat Union Station, uh, to my mind, didn't make a whole lot of sense at the time. But right. uh, you're dealing with historic uh, institutions, regulations and policies, and also, frankly, institutions that don't actually really need to change. I mean, they can just sort of stay the way they are and the rest of us have to work around that. So it was sort of a, a policy and guidelines that were done brokering uh, the relationship between the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, which at the time was on this issue because cities were, were saying we need to find a better way forward. And then the Railway Association of Canada, which had their position and interest related to the, to, to the big rail lines. And, uh, you know, we came came forward with some creative interpretations on how you could calculate that 30 meter setback. But it still presents challenges, certainly in an urban context. And, yeah, uh, and you know, there was a big controversy, obviously, in Toronto with, with free developments wanted to do a project too close to the to the railway and then he changed the residential to office right <laughs> right and Smart. i was like great yeah because train, well, so derail that. train derailments uh, i think it was on dupont or something dupont okay yeah yeah and uh and then obviously in in our ward we of our previous guest mr naram mansoor is, right. is uh, doing a project there with uh with slate. a slate and hopefully our future guest yeah. brandon donnelly uh hopefully we'll get shout him on the brandon, show if you're shout listening. out brandon don't we're uh, still waiting for the know, acceptance you know, of the us. invite <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, with the with the metro links there, and and yeah, because the uh, the options for homes project that's there is pretty far pretty far back from from the street, right? So mm -hmm. I'm hope I'm hoping that behind the scenes you're working on a solution that can uh, get some more housing to our our wonderful. Like, that Danforth Ghost seems to be having a lot of a lot of interest, action, development, whatever you want to call it. I'm assuming it sounds like you've been generally supportive of it, and a lot of downtown developers are. Moving out to the East End, they sort of feel the West is overbuilt. Scarborough 
is becoming a, a I don't want to say a, a hot spot per se, but I think so. I think it's it, hot. It, I, I think I'm Mr. I think I'm Mr. Scarborough. I've done so many studies in Scarborough, like freaking like every single site, you like know? the Golden Mile and all that. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. Golden Mile. Shout out Matt Young. Yeah. Feed Scarborough event this weekend. I didn't see you there, but uh, I was there supporting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I know think that, it's, uh, it's about more housing options for more people in more neighborhoods. And yeah. that looks, you know, it's a big city, a lot of different geography, a lot of different communities. It looks different in different places. But, you know, that particular intersection, Maine and Danforth, uh, it's one of the most transit-rich environments in the entire city. You've got the GO station, you've got Maine TTC, you've got the terminus of the Gerard Streetcar. And, and we have very, very clear provincial policy and direction in which which the city, of course, has to respond to. It says this is where we're going to to build density. So if you accept that premise, and I, I'm you know more in the pragmatic camp that understands this is the world we're operating in, uh, you know how can we get the best outcome for the community? How can we get the best outcome for our new neighbors and residents who will be moving in? And how can we undertake city building exercises where we're leveraging that investment to uh, to make the neighborhood even better? And that's you know providing affordable housing options. That's providing housing for more people. That's improving our transit. It and our amenities, community services, all of that has to be come, come with it. But I think working from a place of collaboration, um, you know, we have we can better position ourselves to unlock those shared mutual goals, and and that's what it's about. Um, you know, when we approach development in in Beaches East York, and certainly at that particular intersection. So I have so many questions on that, but before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I am I am curious about the transition from the public sector, or sort of from the private sector to the public sector, and. Ben wrote a couple of these questions, and one of my favorite ones on here was, "Why, why did you become? What was it? I don't know where it is on here. It was worded so. Why would you possibly become a politician? Yeah, why would you possibly become a politician? And I and I, and I sent that to Ben. I'm like, you really gonna ask that? He said, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. We joke, but seriously, I mean, how, how did you? Yeah, how did you? How did you move from you know city of Toronto to deciding you wanted to be a be a politician? So after after dialogue, I went down to Boston, Massachusetts, was doing some community energy planning, which is really recognizing the inherent connection between how we do land use and what the energy demand is going to be on a community. We know when we build dense urban environments, we can we have more opportunities to do community energy planning. We can use different technologies, make it more efficient. We also don't have to depend on cars. You can walk, all that sort of stuff, the promise of cities. I was doing that for three years. I came back to Toronto. I was working in the chief planner's office at the city of Toronto on the civil service side. And that was my first time being on the civil service side of things. And, you know, I guess I was there for a few years and Working in stakeholder engagement, working within the division of city planning, which which you're all familiar with, uh, and seeing politics up close, but from a civil service side, um, you know, I think it raised a lot of questions, as it does for probably a lot of the listeners, as it does for all the residents and, and neighbors I talk to uh, in the day to day work. And I got involved with an organization called Civic Action at the time, and uh, the Diversity Fellow Program, uh, kind of 30 young leaders from across the GTHA, and I would show up each week and listen to the amazing things that they were working on, whether that was, you know, setting up a food bank or working with that at-risk youth or, you know, trying to eradicate, uh, you know, uh, violence, uh, gang violence. And I sort of found myself showing up and and really just kind of complaining or venting my frustration about the way things were at City Hall, some of the frustration around the politics, uh, and with a great deal of naivety now, looking back on it, you know, you'd see counselors stand up and ask questions, um, 
you know, on particular topics. I'm like, you know, it's in the report. Why didn't you just read the damn report? Uh, and now yeah. in, in hindsight, like, you know, that uh, of course you're asking the questions to elicit a response to make a point. Um, but I was frustrated and I, I didn't think that we saw this sort of generational um, leadership. Uh, we didn't see generational voices represented on that council. Certainly there's there's a need for more diversity. We need to do a better job inclusion uh, with inclusion here in the city of Toronto and, and our council at the time when it was 40, 45, 44, and then it was going to 47. It certainly wasn't overly reflective of the city that we live in. Uh, and it's even less so now that there's 25 of us. But that was sort of a... I don't want to say it was a catalytic moment with civic action, but it was a sort of slow burn where I was reflecting on the work I was doing, wondering how I could create more impact. Um, and I decided, you know, it's one of those moments, stop complaining about it, put your hand up and try and make it better. So without having any experience in politics at all, uh, without, you know, I've never been a member of a party or done any of that sort of stuff, I kind of stepped into the fray and a lot of people said what the hell are you doing like you know my bureaucrat <laughs> civil service colleagues like are you fucking crazy yeah. like you know and i just really didn't appreciate uh fully the challenges the the bumps along the way how vicious it was going to be you know in a campaign but then now that i'm in the job um the vitriol uh but also the you know, the opportunity to create positive change in particular between those ward boundaries of Coxwell and Vic Park, uh, the amount of things that you can accomplish. Um, if you have steadfast determination and you're not going to be moved off that mark, you can really do a lot. So I don't know if I would have run knowing now today, what, you what I knew then, I don't know. Uh, and it's, it's Ignorance really impossible blessed, to right? say. That's what they yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I just, and then you start getting into all the, the party politics and the coalitions of support and, you know, all of that stuff that I had not working in my favor at that time. Um, and again, it was the naivety of like, well, shit, I'll just work really hard. I'll knock every door. I'll just go to every door and talk to everyone and, and win the votes. And, you know, I, don't, I think there was maybe 36 or 37,000 votes cast in that election, and we won by 288. So wow. it was tight. Oh. And, uh, you know, I was kind of a mess on election night going through that and the emotions of it. And it's less about, like, you know, losing. And it's more about letting the people Winning. down no it's, it's, it's you're concerned <laughs> about letting about the people baby. down who have you know believed in you and put so much of their time talent and energy into making this happen right and uh, you ask a great deal of your family and your friends and your volunteers and so that's that's the risk of losing it's it's not really about you it's about letting down the people that you love and right. uh, fortunately we got through it and and here we are in the job can i ask a little bit of a naive question just sort of I've always been interested, but like, how, do, how does that, how does that, those first, what are the first steps in terms of putting your name, putting your hand up and saying, okay, I want to enter this race. You got to pick, I assume you, the, you know, on, on the municipal level, I don't know if you're picking a party per se, like you are, uh, provincially or federally, uh, but then does, does someone have to like, quote unquote, hire you or do you have to be approved to, or can anybody, could I run tomorrow or, and then, and then once you're, you're in the race, you know, how, how do you build up that momentum? I mean, you must need some support to get started coming in as an independent or, or yeah, you yeah. You, you, it, it, ours was a super grassroots campaign. So it, when you talk about grassroots campaign, this was it, it was friends and it was family. And in the day you start uh, at the beginning, you start with just a handful of people. Uh, it's an idea. People had mentioned it, you know, folks, folks had suggested it, uh, to me in, in years previous, I, I had not taken it that seriously. I wasn't 
too interested in politics. Uh, and again, it was that that sort of interaction with civic action that really pushed me into the arena. But you talk to some people, you try and talk to people who know about it, you know, surround yourself with good, smart people. And it's your friends and your family that are going to put in the time because it is a it is a, just a tremendous amount of time and work. Um, the campaign was five months. We took one day off uh, wow. in five months and we were at the door every other day. And you're always out there sometimes, you but, know, but I mean, even even as simple as like picking a ward, like how did you end up? Well, so for, for me, I, you know, I lived there okay. um, and it was in a, a, a unique environment where the previous counselor was no longer running. So there was an open seat. Okay. And then it also happened that the ward north uh, of us, the counselor also wasn't running. That was not part of any sort of calculation because at that time I was thinking I was running in the ward of the beaches. Right. But then when, uh, when council got cut in half, it became Beaches East York. And so then it ended up where the whole thing was open, which was a real... Uh, you know, that doesn't happen in municipal politics very often. Um, you know, so it, it, it worked out in that respect. We had, I think, maybe 16 people in the race. So it was a crowded field. But wow. you really, you know, a winning campaign has exponential growth. And so we started with maybe six people. But on Election Day, you're out there with 100, 120 people knocking doors and getting the vote out. And that's because they believe in, you know, in, in what you're talking about. They believe in you. They believe in the power of change, seeing things different. We ran a cam campaign on that. We try and govern in, in the role that way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's possible, but the odds are stacked against anyone trying to get into the municipal arena, especially going with against an incumbent. In terms of party politics, you know, that was not my, uh, not my space. But I think, you know, if you are a member of certain political persuasion or stripe there are you know get in line like they whether you go through the school board trustee pathway you know right. sort of the anointed right. next person that we're going to back in a running i didn't have any of that stuff but uh certainly there are candidates that get the support from parties and but that's why we were more on the grassroots right. and people from across the political <clears throat> spectrum politics is much of a meritocracy uh environment right it's more of a you know, how old are you? How long have you? What have you done before? What have you got to offer? <laughs> yeah. But good for you. I mean, it's awesome. It's 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 exciting to see. And what were, uh, I mean, I guess we'll, we've already sort of talked about some of it. What were what were like the three platforms you ran on that you think really got everyone behind you or behind bought into buying into your vision? Well, you know, taking my cues from the community. So, and I think that's always important for anyone who's you know an elected leader is. Uh, combination of your leadership style. Do you want to lead from the front and the back? Um, you know, sometimes you have to lead on an issue and bring people there. We can talk about that with housing. Uh, other times you need to build coalitions of support um, and, and move people there that way. You know, Danforth Bike Lanes is a good example of that. So, uh, but for me, it was about road safety. Uh, that was like the number one thing I heard at the door planning joke here. I call Beaches East York the family belt uh, because we've got so many uh, young families who have moved out to the East End and, and road safety is a huge concern, top of mind for yeah. them. And then small businesses, vibrant main streets. Um, that's something that I think all of us you know, aspirationally want to see in our communities. And so not knowing where we'd be in COVID-19 and the work that we've done on small business now, but that was a big part of what I was running on. Um, you know, again, trying to reduce vacancies, find, trying to find ways to support entrepreneurs, people who want to make a go of it in the city. And how can we make that 
easier to support business and have those vibrant main streets. So those were two really big things. And then sort of citywide issues, transit and housing are the generational things that we have to grapple with here in Toronto. And I've got lots of thoughts and ideas on that as well. So that's oh what gosh. we were talking about. I have so many questions on all those things, but Ben, <laughs> Ben, well, keep us why, focused. Yeah, why don't we <laughs> jump ahead? Because it, it, the vibrant, uh, the street fronts one is, uh, is one that I, I grab, you know, I live in the area. So I go down to the, to the beaches all the time and it's just, turnover central it's like so many businesses are turning over new businesses new businesses and then you know obviously there's you know a couple uh you know the one project at the uh the corner of woodbine and kingston road it had it was vacant for 10 years <laughs> right since its completion and there's been a lot of uh vacant storefronts i know that you've you know brought forward a vacant storefront or a vacant retail tax maybe expand on on what you think that's going to solve and and uh, and why you brought it forward it's it's a policy that you know would work in tandem with a couple of other things so we've been working and having discussions with the province about a new subtax class for main street properties uh for mom and pop shops and the regulations on that are are forthcoming and something that you know again silver lining out of the pandemic things that we've been able to achieve but you have a lot of investors you have a lot of speculation on main streets and properties that as you know sit vacant not for you know months not even for years but in some instances for decades and and that is a blight on the neighborhood. Uh, it Residents aren't happy to see it. It's also not good for other businesses in the neighborhood. So the idea of a vacant storefront tax, whether you do that based on property or whether you do that on linear frontage, there's a bunch of different ways that you could do it. All of them are challenging and have pros and cons. Um, but municipalities like San Francisco and stuff are moving forward with this and they've seen positive results that it's starting to increase ten tenancy. And again, increasing the motivation, if you will, uh, to find a tenant and, and get them in there, not just sitting on it, you know, for five years, 10 years, and you got to do it in a smart and sensible way. We are certainly not trying to penalize mom and pops, um, you know, who might be in between tenants. So you got to think about the timeline and on which you would roll this out and how you would do it and where the exceptions are, but really go after folks. And I can name a bunch of specific properties, you know, on, on Queen Street or Kingston or O'Connor uh, or Danforth, where this is the case and the properties have just been vacant. You have absentee landlords, numbered companies, folks that you can't get a hold of. And, and what, you, But what is, what's the incentive for them to keep their, their, their space empty? Well, it's interesting. You talk to different folks, and and there's different reasons for it. Um, you know, some people just have a have a price that's outside of, you know, market comparables and and what the spaces are going for in the area. Other people are not necessarily interested in in bringing in uh, a tenant and doing the upgrades to the space that would be required. Um, you know, there's accessibility requirements now. All of that's changing with respect to AODA requirements and things like that. So, you know, I think it's different. Um, in different instances, maybe they want to keep it vacant to assemble different properties, things like that. You know, it's it's sort of an individual consideration. But from a city policy perspective, if we want to see vibrant main streets, if we want to support uh, local businesses, mom and pop shops, um, we need to make sure that we have accessible and relatively market dependent, but relatively affordable spaces for people to come into. And I think that when I talk about a suite of policy responses, you know, I've also been pushing for, you know, different sort of zoning uh, beyond just our traditional definition of retail, but live work units here in Toronto on our main streets. I've also been pushing it back against the planning paradigm that every building has to have retail at grade. Uh, I think we need Thank to be you. more flexible in that respect because, you. you know, 
know, if you're an entrepreneur in this city, you know, you, you, you probably can't afford both a commercial space or a retail space and somewhere to rent, uh, and live as well. So can we, can we have new definitions? Can we have new zoning around that, that might accommodate that entrepreneurial spirit? And the fact that, you know, in many cities and in many, uh, or many main streets, we actually don't have a shortage of retail. We have a surplus of retail and you know, the, the building gets occupied and then it sits vacant for the next two or three years. And then you get a dry cleaner. Like yeah. that's not really in it's keeping with our city. policy objective of vibrant main streets either. So, so let me ask you, I mean, this is such a good point. We talk about this all the time and it like frustrated the hell out of me when I lived off the damn fourth, um, through COVID there was tons of vacancies. And then I've had a lot of friends move down to the big beaches proper and I kind of see the same thing. Like, there's a lot of similarities between the Dan- Danforth and the beaches. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll sort of digress. I mean, you go, you go, you go Queen West, or you go King West, or you go to some, you know, you, you go to some of these super vibrant, hip, cool streets that have great restaurants, great retail. Um, the difference, and it's like so simple to me, is on on the west side. There's tons of condos and there's tons of density and the east side there's none and the only way to support proper retail that's going to succeed long term is to have more residents shopping eating dining using the retail whatever that may be so to me the answer seems so simple but for whatever reason those two Avenues, Danforth in particular drives me bonkers because there's a subway under it. It's like, why isn't there a tall tower in every, at every subway stop? And I know there's a lot of pushback and the reasons for it, but it seems like a simple fix. And then if you go into some of the houses, you know, you have these four bedroom houses with one or two people living in them. So I don't know. It, it seems like you could fix the retail and you could fix some of the affordability issues with with a with, with, I don't want to say a quick, you know, signature or whatnot. Obviously, you, you seem to be pushing for it, but you seem to also be an anomaly in, in the system. Do, would you agree or yeah. am, am I off base? No, no. I mean, there, there's a lot of things to agree with there. Um, and, and there's a lot of historical factors and there's a lot of political factors for all those decisions. As they say, planning is politics. Um, you know, the, the beach is a, is a bit of a different beast in that you don't have a 360 degree catchment area. Uh, you've got your, your border by the lake. So in terms of where you're drawing from your retail crowd, it, there's also certainly a season, seasonality element to, to the beaches. Um, but yeah, Danforth, you're sitting on a billion dollars of subway infrastructure and the majority of the buildings are two stories. Uh, so that's, that's, that's a little bonkers. Um, a little? The, 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 <laughs> it's just the, the most bonkers you know, thing. And yeah, it drives me nuts. Yeah. So, you know, I think we're in a part of the city where we've actually experienced population decline. Beaches East York and, and a bunch of the East End. And really? precisely for the reasons that you've identified in that you have these larger single detached houses. You know, maybe you had generational house, households where the grandparents were living there and, uh, you know, uh, parents and kids. And now you have, uh, you know, just empty nesters and everybody's moved out. And so you've got a big house with only two people living in it. So we've actually experienced population decline. And, um, and and that's a product of our housing stock. That's a product of our planning policies. That seems crazy and, in a city that seems to be 
attracting, I don't know, like 75,000 to 140,000 immigrants a year. It also pushes back against the conversations that you always have with neighborhoods about, well, how are we going to, you know, be able to accommodate the services? You know, like we actually have population decline. Uh, so when we talk about, you know, stormwater, sewage capacity, things like that, you know, even school school capacity, I think a lot of our schools are, are uh, you know, you go to a place like Seacourt and they have 11 portables, like there is a school capacity challenge there. But sure. in, a, in a lot of places um, with population decline, um, you know, it, it's hard to understand the premise of those arguments that things like stormwater or sewage cannot accommodate additional growth. So, um, you know, we're going to see more density on Danforth. And again, the the provincial policy framework articulates that uh, we are under undertaking our municipal comprehensive review to bring all of our policies into conformity with all of that stuff um, that will drive the density and growth along a place like Danforth. You know, also those are ta- those are challenging lots. You know, you've got those shallow shallow lots, and we can talk about our, our mid-rise requirements, our mid-rise rise guidelines, and how we treat a eight-story building pretty much the same as a sixty-story building, and how right. you know impractical and challenging that makes it to unlock mid-rise. We've talked about mid-rise and avenue development for a decade in the city of Toronto, and yet very little of that has materialized. So I think we ought to be speaking with the folks who are building it, understanding what the challenges are, and then, you know, creating a policy and regulatory regime that responds to those challenges. I'll tell you what the problem is. I'll tell you what the problem is with yeah. mid-rise. It, sure. there, there's a couple of problems, and this is just, it's so obvious. First of all, if you want to, if you if developers, if you want to incent developers or anyone to build a eight-story, as it should be as of right, it should be a six-month planning process. It should be, here's here's what I got, here's what I want to do, make sure the building looks and conforms within the neighborhood and, and put it through the process. But, you're, you know, these guys are buying land, then, then they have to go through a four-year process, the same as, like you said, a 60-story building, the same process to get a tenth of the of the square footage approved it's it's just crazy and on those tight sites on the mid-rise buildings the your one delay or one mistake or one cost overrun from eroding all of your profit and it can happen like that right like higher land costs higher construction costs less efficient building and there are so many and, there, and the thing is there's there's yeah. so many fixed costs in development now so whether you're doing a 60 story or an 8 story building like a lot of these costs are fixed and then everyone's like well why would I do that right so the, it's the just, system no doesn't money in really it. incentivize the type of development that we would want to see in instead we get you know and there's nothing wrong with 60 story buildings in different parts of the city but we get a lot of time and energy focused around those you know those big major projects because if you're going to go through the time of tying up and acquiring sites and assembling parcels and then you know the, the planning process multiple years for OPAs, owning bylaw amendments, uh, you know, exactly you know, the, the return on that is, is limited on a six or eight story building with, you know, 70 units yeah. so I think that we need to uh, we need to take a fresh approach. We need to understand the constraints and find a pathway forward to make sure that the projects that we'd like to see in some of our neighborhoods, because they're not all going to be 60-story towers, that's for sure. No. Um, but, you know, those eight-story mid-rise, 10-story mid-rise projects on a street like Danforth, how can, we, uh, how can we support those from our planning process to make sure that we get good outcomes, first and foremost, for the community, but also a product and projects that, that people can build? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've been kind of at it for a decade now and we haven't seen this prolific um you know unleashing of mid-rise across toronto you just haven't seen it we can talk about our mid-rise guidelines till the cows come home but um you know until there's a process in place that that works for more people i think it's going to be a very slow uptake i I think i think the answer is as it has to be 
you have to figure out a way because you buy a site in New York right now, you could basically build whatever you want. Like the planning process is 12, maybe 16, maybe 18 months, whether you're building 20 or 80 stories. And you really, they're like, okay, go for it. Good luck. Here, now, like the red tape to get anything approved, every every developer in the city sees it. And I'm on the lending side, so we do a lot of land financing. So the guys have assembling their site, and you know they're like, okay, we're going to get have our approvals in 18 months, and you just like laugh. You're like, okay. And here's where the politics sure here's where the politics comes in, though, is because you know there there's a reason. I, I'm I'm speculating. I, uh, I don't know the answer to this, but like, why haven't we updated our zoning bylaw? We do it site by site because you have councilors uh, who. You know, want to have the hands on the reins uh, for a site by site zoning bylaw, um, uh, zoning bylaw approval process, and so we update Toronto zoning bylaw on a site by site basis rather than doing as of right. And I know, uh, you know, city planning, uh, you know, will point to Egg- parts of Eglinton and they will point to parts of St. Clair, and and it is also just a tremendous amount of work to do that. So I'm cognizant of that, but I think the politics of the city and having a ward councillor system has lended itself to, uh, you know, politicians that are very reluctant to, you know, trust in staff, trust in the process, let go of the reins a little bit. They want to be hands on and they want to make sure that they're at the table on every single site by site uh, zoning bylaw amendment. So I asked uh, my friend Mark Richardson if he would uh, give me some ideas for, for a question, and he said uh, yes if I would ask this. Why does every good idea that comes to council, where we can see examples that work in other cities, uh, example being laneway housing, street patios, garden suites, require a long staff study or a pilot program before city council will even consider attempting it in Toronto? Well, that's a good question, and... Um I think the short answer is we're a big city, three million people, and a lot of different views. And so as frustrating as the incremental nature of things can be in a city like Toronto, and certainly we can point to other jurisdictions and say, you know, oh, bike lanes, like, fuck, we know bike lanes work, just build them. Okay. Um, And that's true. And that feels good. And you can post it on Twitter and everyone's going to smash the like button. But the reality is there are a lot of different views and perspectives. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll get to that. Um, There's a lot of different views and perspectives. And I think it goes back to that comment about leadership. Sometimes you have to to lead on an issue and be out in front of it and show people where we need to go. Other times you have to build coalitions of support. Um, and so, you know, I don't know when this podcast plays, but on Thursday I'm launching a live music on patios pilot in Beaches East York. And, you know, we've never done that in the city of Toronto, permitted live music on patios. I'm sure I will hear from a lot of uh, different neighbors who think this is a terrible idea. Um, But also going back to creating vibrant main streets, you know, supporting artists, supporting local businesses, you know, and in the moment that we are right now, we need to be more aspirational as a city. We need to ask more of ourselves. We need to push ourselves. And we've seen government move at light speed during the pandemic. It's been an opportunity to try things out differently. So, but the reason it's only in Beaches East York, uh, and actually I, I have two colleagues who are joining me uh, in the crusade here, uh, so it's in three wards. But the reason it's not across the entire city is my colleagues weren't there. They're not there for it. And they're, why would you want to do that? Your inbox is going to blow up. You're going to have a lot of headaches. You're going to have a lot of complaints. This is contradictory to our noise bylaw. The zoning doesn't permit it. All of this is true. Um, but that that's not something that they want to take on right now. So I will carry that water. We will do it in Beaches, East York. We will ensure it's a success and we will build the model 
and then we will roll it out across the city. Same thing with the missing middle pilot that I'm bringing to Beaches East York and the, the infamous R zoning and RD zoning in Toronto. We're going to tackle that together. And again, it's it's my way of leaning on issues that I'm passionate about, um, you know, kind of stepping out on it, putting my neck out there, so to speak, but, you know, ensuring that I put in the time and an effort to make sure it's successful, build the model within my ward boundary between Coxwell and Vic Park, and then building something that we can transfer across the city. So it's slow and painful uh, and frustrating a lot of the time, but pilot projects can also make things better. You know, we've seen the city move forward on things, hasn't necessarily gone well, and then you have a, you know, really violent political backlash. You can point to the Jarvis Street bike lanes as a great example. Those went in under one administration, and then you had an entire mayoralty campaign, you know, really focused on ripping those things out or the vehicle registration tax, and you have this vicious backlash, and it moves the other way. So there is something to be said when you move too fast and too hard on something, you can lose support. And if you don't have the support of the people, um, you know, it, it makes it really hard to get things done. So I think that's why Toronto, you know, we never want to be first through the wall. First person through the wall always gets a little bloody. That's not us. Um, it is a incremental city and has been for a long time. And as frustrating as that is, um, you know, I think we can still get to good results and, and get things done. It's nice. just slow and frustrating. Nice. So, Steve, you had a question about cycling. You, Brad, you rode your bike here. You're a big-time cyclist. Steve Not a question. Is, Steve, are you, are, you, are you one of those old guys right. that drives their car everywhere, no. even like the, the I convenience have a bike. store? I, I cycle. <laughs> I, I bought a road bike. I love biking. I do it all the time, and I have no problem with bike lanes. My my. My question or my qualm. My qualm. Yeah, is this like a constituency <laughs> question now? Is this? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure how to how to phrase this. I I I get frustrated with the amount. Okay, this isn't very. This is. It's not a walkable city. It's like you go to Manhattan. It's a very walkable city. The transportation is unbelievable. And I have a lot of friends now living in New York, and and they don't. I guess they may have one car, but a lot of them don't have cars. They don't need a car. Unfortunately, the way that the city is spread out from the west to the east, north to the south, it's not a walkable city. Um, and we have snow on the ground at least six months of the year. So I'm, I don't have a problem with bike lanes. I like bike lanes. I think it's important to have a safe place for bikers to bike. I just am getting a little frustrated with how many bike lanes are going in and where they're going in and not really fully understanding the approval process for how they get, uh, I, I guess, who agrees who agrees on where they go and when and what that process looks like and and the one that i guess frustrates me the most right now are the bike lanes on young street it's like it was a two, it was a busy two lane street in, in each direction to begin with now it's down to one lane each direction like you can't drive on it like it's it's impossible I, from rosedale station to summerhill station took takes 30 minutes to drive now and I and I'm just like, okay, who approved this and why here and why this, and and why can't we? You know, we have the bike lanes on Sherburn, which are amazing, and I use them all the time. I, I literally used to go up and down them every day um, when I lived downtown. But now it looks like they're. I'm not sure. It looks like they're putting bike lanes on Sherburn, and now they have them on Young and or on uh, Jarvis and Young and University, and. They look, or they appear to be relatively underused. Now, there's, there's the flip side is like, oh, put the bike lanes and the bikers will come. I've heard that a million times. I just don't know if I buy into that in this city with, with the way that the city is set up. 
Yeah. So it's just it's frustrating. Even even on you know. Get to the question. Finish. The I don't question. have a question. I'm rant, I'm on a rant. There's a rant. There's a friendly rant that I'm on that I just wanted to get off my chest. And well, I'm glad okay. this is no, one of those friendly rants because yeah. I normally get the like really unfriendly rants. I'm not. So that was I'm good. not like because again I'm not. I'm not. I'm not anti-bike lane like when i lived at broadview and danforth i'd jump on the bike lanes and and ride to yorkville yeah. like it's and it's I great th- i think to answer the initial question there of like how who approves these how do they get there we've got a 10-year cycling network plan it's all articulated in that network plan uh bureaucracy the city of toronto we got a million plans uh and and then we take our time implementing those um and then more recently, we've taken a 10-year plan and we've made it a three-year implementation plan. So those ones that have the highest best case use case scenario. But who's doing the, like, who, who's, who's so it's transportation who's services staff and there and, is and a, who's a, on that? I mean, do those guys. I mean, it seems like it's just a bunch of bikers <laughs> who are on it. And they're like, we ain't bike lanes ever. It's fucking street. We well, you know what? Bike and lane. it's funny because I'm like, I don't want bike lanes because I would push especially. back and, and say that sometimes we. Oh, you put bike lanes on the DVP and garden. ride your bike everywhere. Then you won't have to worry about it because there's a bike lane on every street. I can't ride yes. my bike every. It just does not work for like <laughs> what I do and how I do it. And most so, people, so I, feel I think are as, the same. as the city is growing, like we have to move off of the antiquated notion that you know you're going to get across the city in 15 minutes. It's just you know we're too big, as you said. The geography here, 644 square kilometers. Um, the idea that it's 1980 and you can just hop in your car and zip across the city. It's a bit of a fantasy uh, in the world that we're living in today. And I'm not saying that that's a that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying this that's is real. the world. And that's that fine. And it's and it's going to yeah. get worse. And and I have accepted that. If you want to live in the city, like you need to accept this congestion, which I'm not. So arguing with. And, and so and then and the other thing I'll add is like bike lanes generally get built where you have political leadership or maybe you wouldn't call it leadership, but you have politicians who want to support bike lanes. So uh, that tends to be downtown councillors, you know, and then as you move further east, I would be sort of kind of more on the extremity of of where the bike lanes become viable. But these things are identified. We're building a network, which is north, south, east, west, which is why connections like Young are important. I used to live at Young and Eglinton, uh, as as many of us in the Toronto pilgrimage have. And uh, I would ride from Young and Bloor up to uh, Young and Eglinton and it was it was pretty shitty like it's uh it was always tight two lanes traffic moving at different speeds people cutting in and out of course ingress egress all the different businesses and buildings along the way and now you know it's funny because the cycling community would tell you that's a substandard chip bike lane um so i always talk to cycling what, advocates Street bike lane yeah the, because they're it's, complaining about the standard of the well, bike so lane? i was gonna say this <laughs> is what this is what's frustrating you know being a cycling advocate on council uh are you a is, cycling advocate well i think so yeah I think I've been pretty pretty clear, campaigned on it, uh, pushed it real hard, and and have delivered it. But uh, you're dealing with advocates who, you know, are are rarely satisfied with what comes forward. They say it's too slow. They, to, you know, to Ben's comment earlier, why are we piloting it? We know bike lanes work, and and so they're pushing. They're pushing hard, and there's a role for that. Um, but the reality is, they're they're often underwhelmed and unimpressed with what you deliver, and then everybody else in the city hates it. So this is why you don't get politicians who are big on Can bike we lanes go back to because your, it's a losing question? it's a losing issue. Why on earth <laughs> did you possibly want to become <laughs> yeah. a politician? Yeah. Well, it's like you can't keep you can't even make the people you're trying to make happy. Well, happy. so this is uh, you know it's a it's a it's a tough spot to be in, but 
I think you just sort of you believe that you can take the job and make a difference for a particular moment in time. It is a as as hard as I find this job and I struggle with it and and sort of the mental health toll on myself and my family. It is it is hard and it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And I think you know through the pandemic, the vitriol and the intensity and the divisiveness of the society that we're living in right now has only gotten worse. But you do look at the things where you can move the needle and create the kind of positive change that you're all about. And, you know, optimism is a is a force multiplier and you try and stay positive. And there are so many folk people focused on tearing things down. Um, but you got to look to community led change. You got to look to people who are about building things and focus on that. And if you, you know, dedicate your headspace to to looking for the wins, looking for the opportunities, how you can make this city that we all care about better, that kind of keeps you going. But if you spend too much time in Facebook groups or on Twitter, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's not great. It's not well, a great I, space. I, I don't mind bike lanes. I, li- I like the Danforth bike lanes. I, I am actually have an appointment to take my uh, bike in just so I could actually ride it because I never rode it before because I just didn't feel it was safe. I think the Danforth looks a lot better the way it is. I didn't like driving on there and people would pass you on, the, on one side and in and out of parked cars. And it just wasn't a safe street. It wasn't a fun street to drive on. And, and and when I'm going downtown, uh, if I'm driving, I give myself a lot of extra time. Most of the time I take uh, an Uber and so I can do work on my phone. I can edit documents. I can do work on my phone. I give myself the extra time. And, you know, I take the go and take the streetcar and take the, the subway when I can. So uh, I'm not I'm not bothered by it. Um, okay, I got another I, question. I, I do have to laugh what? at the people who think that you can, like, do everything on a bike. That is the one thing that I, that I laugh at. Someone's like, oh, I put a... Uh, trailer on the back and I did like grocery shopping for two weeks uh, I'm like uh, Amazon <laughs> yeah. yeah well, Amazon deliveries are in cars um, anyways no, listen, sorry. we had, uh, that, was we a, had uh, that was just a comment we had Neil Patterson on the show and and he he he's a developer with uh, Greywood I don't know if you if you know them or run into them but he he actually is like I gotta I gotta live what we preach and we you know we want to I'm into bikes so we bought an electric bike and he's been biking I got Ricky from my office. He bought an electric bike. He lives at uh, Queen and Coxwell, and he bikes well, in and you know the development the community. Community, They love bikes because they're like, oh, we'll put in a million bike parking spots so and, 20, and twenty under parking. <laughs> parking yeah, yeah. Spots no parking. Cars, so. Three yeah. bike stalls. How, how, yeah. I'm, I'm a little confused between like a regular bike, an electric the bike, electric and a awesome. motorcycle. Like, what okay, is what, how, how, do, how do you go from like you this on, is an electric, on this bike electric bike to a bike, motorcycle? And you you hit the hit the gas the like the pedal down like once and all of a sudden you're like, it just takes off it I guess I don't know like the the science behind it but it's pretty cool it's really cool but let me ask you another question as we digress into <laughs> this, this is talk. office hours now <laughs> this is office hours <laughs> all right so there was this this whole I love I hate Twitter but I love it because it's just I I hate it I, I hate, just hate it I but I'm glad can't. that somebody likes it no I don't I hate yeah. it too it's just so dumb because you just can't win. And people are just looking to pick a fight with you, especially the people who don't have like their name as their name or their picture as their picture. Sure. Those people love to say whatever they want. They're so tough. Um, so, and I listen. I was. I told you I have a, a road bike and have done like the road cycling before. And one of the great loops that all the cyclists do is they go to High Park and they do the loop around High Park and then they go down along Lakeshore up Ellis. There's a little loop and then you go back. You do, but you know you get going in High Park and you are going probably. Like you're going 35, you can get going to 40 kilometers an hour. It's fast, and you got a big pack of bikers going. So now they're handing out speeding tickets in High Park to what? cyclists. Yeah, really. And, and I actually, being one of them, 
I, I totally see both sides. Like, it's extremely dangerous. There's kids running across the street. These guys are whizzing by on their bikes, like, some cases over 40 kilometers an hour. And now the cyclist community is, like, all upset that they have to follow the rules of the road. And one of my qualms <laughs> with cyclists as a driver is it's, like, they can break all the rules, but if you hit them as a driver, it's still your fault. And you kill them like you're the one who's going to jail, probably not the one who, not the guy who who probably cut you off. So I just like people to obey the rules. Okay, so my question for you, Mr. Counselor, is where do you stand on on, on cyclists and and the rules of the road? Like I, well, I assume e- everybody you're, you're, needs to you're, obey you're the rules your, of the your road. Politician answer. That's not a be. political answer. That is the that is the law. However, it is about who is vulnerable and the vulnerability. And certainly, you know, I have never seen a you know a cyclist hit a car and kill. The driver. No, but you know, I, but it, have you ever seen a cyclist stop for a stop sign? Yes, I, I, I have. And, I am not. And and I've also seen. <laughs> I, 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 I have, and I and I do myself. Um, I'm I'm not saying I've never ran one, uh, but I do. And and I've Neither also seen I'm, lots of drivers, you know, like kill people, literally fucking kill people and pedestrians and cyclists and vulnerable road users and the onus is on the person driving the two-ton vehicle to to not kill somebody and if that requires a little bit more caution if that takes a little bit more time the onus and the responsibility on them is to not run somebody over even if somebody is you know letter of the law rolling a stop sign yes it still doesn't give you the right or make it permissible to to run them over with your vehicle and so i you know i don't like these arguments of like well Oh fuck! The cyclist should just you know obey the rules, and like you know people shouldn't jaywalk, and you know drivers shouldn't speed. Like everybody should be obeying the You're rules. Right. You're right. But the onus of who is going to die uh, in in a collision is a, it, the onus is on the person driving the vehicle. Um, it, it doesn't mean that in a courtroom, you know, somebody's at fault or not at fault. It's just like, I don't want people dying on the streets right. in Toronto. And I agree. Listen, and we, I, and, no, and I know, yeah. I know you agree. I'm just, I'm just sort of speaking to like a bit of like the hypocrisy. I hear, I hear it, it a right? lot on Twitter yeah. and, uh, and I hear it. Cause from, I was, from I was reading on Twitter. I'm like, this is, yeah. this is a no win. Like well, this is a no win. Like I'm in my mid forties. I got three kids. I drive slow. I know that there's, there's cyclists, there's kids, there's all these types of things. And I just wish people would obey the rules regardless of what you are. If you're a car, drive below the speed limit. If you're a, if you're a cyclist, be a cyclist. Don't be a pedestrian and a cyclist. On the right? sidewalk. You don't drive yeah. on the sidewalk. Yeah. You don't oh, turn here. You don't turn there. It's... And the other thing, like even he just, I drove here today, which I normally wouldn't have, but I did drive here today coming yeah, up right. Jarvis he, with, he the, with the construction. He always and there's, there's, you know, they're doing construction. There's giant trucks on either side. And then, yep, someone like runs right out. And I'm, I'm not driving fast. I'm driving below the speed limit. And it's just like... Dude, yeah. dude, you got to walk yeah. 10 more feet to cross at the crosswalk, right? And this coming back to like, bike lanes, oh. you know, uh, uh, the, the police ticketing in High Park and, and that stuff uh, frustrates me because I have a lot of constituents who uh, talk to me all the time about the speeding on side streets, the speeding on Kingston Road, uh, all these sort of things. And we're out at six in the morning uh, when the only people in High Park are cyclists and we're we're hitting them with infractions for rolling stop signs. Like, I, I would rather see those resources, you know, just personally deployed elsewhere. I agree. Um, yeah. You know, again, speeding traffic, speeding cars, speeding drivers through our neighborhoods where our kids are playing and uh, there are vulnerable road users. That's where I think we should be directing those resources. That's way way just too my, many cars going through red lights. Yeah, way too that's my speeding. personal opinion. Uh, so. We don't we don't tell the police what to do, but I think um, I think it gets back to that. You know, we need to build a city with with 
infrastructure for all all users and it works best when we demarcate that space right you as a cyclist me as a cy- we all feel more comfortable in a separated bike lane we all feel more comfortable with generous pedestrian space and sidewalks you know um and and intersections that are designed to facilitate crossings in a safe and clear way when there yeah. is confusion that's when we have trouble anyways i appreciate you taking accepting my rant and i i commend you for getting so what you like, got done it's um, like the nicest rant i've ever heard yeah it's okay fine. no no i mean listen you've, you've done obviously a good job the, the bike lanes on danforth I, w- I was opposed when they were building them but it, it looks good the street patios look good it was great to be able to go to all the restaurants during covid and actually have a meal on, on the patio yeah i hope the I patios i hope the patios stay. i hope they stay too and that actually goes back to the comment about young street it's i haven't gone to any of those patios but it looks like all the restaurants are set up so they're, they're sharing the that former car lane with bike yeah, lane restaurant totally. it, so, it, it is it is the cafe to program right. and active to kind of combined together to and create a, a street like that has more more business opportunities for our restaurants more more space for people if, if anybody right. complains about the live music on the patio just give, <laughs> yeah, i'll take i'll take that call we'll, we'll yeah, that's, that's crazy that someone's anyway well, we'll, we'll see well yeah. let's let's yeah. jump back into yeah. a little bit more yeah. more housing then i guess let's uh, digress back into okay so we have an affordability crisis obviously in toronto um we had the multi-tenant housing or rooming houses uh um you know legislation and, and policy come up to provide obviously it provides cheap accommodation for you know least affluent uh, residents in our city um and so why is this illegal why, why are they illegal in so many parts of the city that just doesn't make any sense to me well i guess the illegal nature would go back to our sort of amalgamated bylaw city approach of, of different boroughs coming together with different policies and and you can find all of those sort of easter eggs in our zoning bylaw across the city of like oh you know this goes back to the zoning when this was east york or or whatever but you know, this conversation in, in Toronto is, is not a new one. It's been going on for decades. And as you just said, you know, we have a housing crisis, uh, multi, uh, multi-tenant multi units and, and rooming houses are among the most affordable options for people uh, when they come to Toronto. I know when I, I finished my undergrad at York University, I lived in one of the quintessential rooming houses uh, on a street called Aldwinkle up in uh, York University in the village. And there was like 10 rooms in it. Uh, And, you know, that would be an illegal sort of rooming house situation. But it was a really important, affordable type of accommodation uh, for me at that, that point in my life. And uh, and there were a lot of problems with it too, and so this is is my case and argument for why we ought to be providing a pathway to conformity, uh, providing a pathway for enforcement and regulation, and why why we need to roll this out across the city of Toronto because it's not safe for tenants the way it is right now. So we need to listen to tenant experiences, and it's also not great for neighbors. And you know it's it's a nightmare for our bylaw enforcement unit because they don't actually have the policies in place, um, you know, to to be. Able to consistently enforce this. So to my mind, this is a policy uh, whose time has come. It's it's long overdue. And the reason it hasn't happened today and, and how you saw it deferred at council last month uh, is, is strictly a matter of politics. I don't dismiss anyone's concerns. I understand those concerns. But those of us in political leadership positions need to take the time to, you know, either lead by stepping out and, and bringing people along or taking the time to build coalitions of support. And certainly we've had a long time to build coalitions of support on this. And, um, you know, I, I'm okay with the deferral over the summer here because 
there are several counselors who are never going to be there. They are not voting for that, and uh, they feel like, you know, it, it would be the end end of them politically in their ward if they supported it. But there, I'm confident there's a number that will put in the time this summer to to find something that we can all as a council pass and provide a pathway forward. And again, it's it's about providing affordable housing options for people in different communities, making it safer for ta- tenants, uh, making it better for neighbors, and providing a pathway to conformity. That is what this discussion is about. And to just keep it in the shadows and pretend like it doesn't exist, like that's bullshit, right? Like it, it does exist. And it doesn't exist in, in a way that works well for anyone. So we need to bring, we need to build a policy framework where, you know, we recognize that this is a part of our, our housing strategy and the continuum here in Toronto. And, and make it safer for the people who are living there and make it better for the, the neighbors who are adjacent. Makes sense. That's a good answer. I, I, didn't, I actually didn't even realize that, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea. Actually, it's a good question, but I, that the answer is very uh, informative. I, I didn't realize that that was something that you're dealing with. Um, let's bring it back maybe to the, to the real estate uh, world and the development. We have a lot of developers or um, uh, future developers who listen but one question we want to ask is um you know how can the real estate development community be be better partners with the city and vice versa so that each new housing development doesn't have to go through a painful multi-year process to get approvals like we talked about but is there a way i guess another way to word it is there a way for the the public and the private worlds to collaborate and make this You've been you've been on both sides of the coin, I guess, yeah. or not not on the development side, but you've been on the political side and the planning side. So what, you know, I guess the things where's that you're the, seeing where's that the could missing be, middle. yeah, yeah, <laughs> where's, where's the Part things the that, that either side could be doing to kind of get the process moving quicker? Well, I think nothing's been quick and there's been a lot of things in limbo with so many of the changes that we've seen provincially. Um, you know, the, the notion of the CBC community benefits, um, the, the new framework around PMTSAs, all of those changes that, uh, frankly have, you know, undone the planning regime that was put in place by the previous government and changed it. You know, that's, that's the right of the province to do that, of course. Um, but you know, just like transit, when you come in and rip up a plan, uh, it doesn't allow us to move forward expeditiously. It, it causes delay and, and reworking of things. So, you know, that stuff, the city has to respond to those provincial changes. I think that there's a lot of room to improve the development process, both for applicants, but also for residents uh, and for the community. And, you know, the city has come forward with this new concept to keys um, office that sort of is in charge of overseeing the development process soup to nuts and reconciling comments uh, from all the different commenting partners. You know, you can have conflicting comments from heritage, urban design, planning and forestry. And I know that frustrates people because it's all the city of Toronto, right? Like it's it's the city of Toronto. It's very frustrating. Like so you talk to one person at the city and they're like, we don't want any parking. And then you talk to another person you're like yeah everyone moving this city wants one and a half cars and you have to and you're like okay who, yeah like, yeah where so, am i supposed to get guidance from there? so <laughs> so we're bringing in a system to try and address um 
those discrepancies and provide consistency and clarity. And I know that that's what, you know, everyone who's investing in Toronto wants to have is consistency and clarity. Um, but also on the development side, I think there's an onus to, you know, it's not just about doing the bare minimum. There are some fantastic uh, development partners who, you know, don't just see themselves as making a real estate play in the city of Toronto, but they see themselves as city builders, investing in communities uh, and delivering really great projects that are additive to a neighborhood in a positive way. And so approaching the conversation from that standpoint, I think is, uh, is really helpful because there's always things that the community wants to unlock. There are things that the community wants to see. Uh, and then there are things on the development side that, you know, need to be achieved to help a project go forward, you know, a certain rate of return, uh, a certain timeline, certain certainties. Um, and so when we focus on that, where there's that intersection on the Venn diagram of the things that both sides want to achieve, I think it can make it a lot easier to navigate some of the more contentious or difficult issues to, to broach. But like every industry, you know, a few bad actors ruin it for everybody. And so when you see heritage buildings that get torn down over a weekend, when you see rents that get jacked up 300% uh, month to month, like that's where government has massive reactions and swings a big hammer. And then all of a sudden you see heritage conservation districts and batch listings of a thousand properties. Yeah, everything's heritage yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So like that's what happens. You know, industry, a few bad actors, it's, it's not everybody, but a few bad actors will make those kind of moves. It blows up in the press. Community loses their mind and like rightfully so. And I understand. Uh, and then government counters with, with a huge reaction. And so, you know, it's, it's just an appeal to, to try and take a city building mentality, try and be collaborative on both sides and the city as well, like digging in our heels on things that, yes, letter of the law may in fact be the case, but actually are imperative to moving a project forward. You know, if it just ends up in, in fights and arguments and delays and everybody ends up at the board, that's not a good outcome either. So I don't know, that's sort of the approach that I personally take to it. And I know that there's a lot of people, the city staff that also, uh, have that view, um, but not everybody either. So this is, I think this is how we end up in these really contentious conversations. And then, and then there are counselors that, that of course, you know, hire outside consultants to go fight our city staff's own position at the board and stuff. So, you know, that's, that's sort of wild to my mind always, yeah, uh, also. Well, there's like this whole, like, you know, this whole mentality of, you know, if, if you're going to get in a fight, you might as well just assume the fight and assume you're just going to the LPAT. And I don't know, that attitude to me just seems so contradictory to like what we're trying to do. And you talk about city builders. I would say every single one of our guests who's a developer, like they're at their core, they're, they're good people. They want to do good for the city. They're either born and raised or have moved here and love the city. And they want to add to, to what are to one of what I believe and they believe is one of the greatest places to live in, in the world. And no one wakes up in the morning being like, I want to screw everybody and I want to, you know, I don't know. I, I want to ruin the city. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is to make this a better place to live with more housing that's more affordable, that's more attractive for immigrants and, and um, I, I guess just the general population. And uh, I don't know. It, it's just frustrating to hear, like, the other side. But I, but I do hear you, like, there, there is one, there's one asshole who, who's done that and that, that's now affected everybody. Yeah. And, there are, there are, and, and that's not just a development. That's, like... Every sector out there, you know, yeah. you, you could you could point to banks, you could point to pharmacy, uh, you could point to grocery stores, like like name me a sector that doesn't have bad actors that, you know, then something blows up in the media and becomes a big problem for everybody no, else. I know. And then the other flip side of it is this bad actors probably in the city, too. There's probably people who just like hate development. They're NIMBYs at heart and they're like, I don't want any more development. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's move on. Speaking of bad actors. You know, the person that came out and said that the parking lot was the hub of the community, which is just a, a joke uh, because they obviously they don't want affordable housing in their in their neighborhoods. Can you talk a little bit about modular housing and some of the other affordable housing issues that you have going in the ward? Yeah. You know, in the defense of that individual, you know, they obviously called the press to come and have a community sort of press conference. They, <laughs> they held it in the in the parking lot. And uh, but these folks haven't done a lot of press. Right. Like, you know, I go in front of the press sometimes, not that often. Uh, I get nervous. I misspeak. Uh, it happens. And, and certainly someone who's just from the, the neighborhood, you know, uh, he obviously meant to say the park is the heart of the community, not mm-hmm. the parking lot. Uh, <laughs> but then all of a sudden, you know, he's the subject of urbanist memes and it kind of blows up on, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is and, that what happened? I don't even hear that yeah, story. So, yeah, so oh, not okay. great. That makes sense. Yeah, not great. But um, Did he later admit that that's what he meant? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was, uh, it, it was understood. But that is a great example of, you know, a project coming forward, the communications on it and, and the city, like we have to own that. Like they, they were horrendous and we're already fighting an uphill battle when it comes to housing. We're fighting an uphill battle when it comes to supportive modular housing. And, and it's a tough site. It's a site with, uh, you know, a lot of contentious things, whether we're talking about parking and people laugh, but everybody, you know, in this space knows that parking can be extremely contentious. Uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, high needs clients who are going to be moving in. Uh, we're talking about uh, a type of housing forum that doesn't look like anything, you know, around the single detached and semi houses that it's going up on. And we're, we're dealing with a project with an extremely expedited timeline and a ministerial zoning order to expedite that and a construction process that's going to take like eight weeks. So, you know, I find out about it as a counselor, like a matter of days before the announcement. It's driven by a federal timeline uh, on CMHC uh, Housing Innovation Fund. Dollars have to be spent out the door by 2021. So there's a lot of things. It's a really complicated project. And from a comm standpoint, you know, we, we did not do a good job rolling this out in, in a way where we're going to provide the information and the facts that people are naturally going to have questions to. You know, we couldn't talk to them about ta- timelines. We couldn't talk to them about the RFP process. We couldn't talk to them about who was going to be moving in because we didn't have the answers. So, you know, it's one of those building the plane uh, as you're taxiing down the runway situations. And that information gap, that void of facts that existed for like three weeks was killer. And we were on the back foot and, you know, we've never really recovered. You know, the the thing, the script in these projects is often the same in every neighborhood, every project, you know, uh, we care about affordable housing. We want to help people, but this isn't the right site. This could be the right site. If it was, you know, name X, Y, and Z group, if it was families, if it was seniors, if it was women, if it was indigenous, you know, go down the list. Um, Nobody, nobody wants men moving into the neighborhood. Um, you know, there's concerns of the proximity to the school. Um, and my point is, like, I was never dis- dismissive of any of these concerns. You know, I want to work through the concerns. I want to provide people with the facts and the information, and the data points. But the conversation was extremely toxic. Uh, you know, I, I um, you know, as as we've moved through it, you've seen how the community has changed their tone. Uh, the Facebook group that immediately appeared and had hundreds of people join, you know, it was first called stop the mod mod being modular. Then it was say no to MZO. And then a couple weeks later, 
after the parking lot incident and, and sort of getting lambasted publicly, it became East York Cares. So a bit of a, you know, astroturfing sort of situation there. And, you know, again, um, it makes it really challenging. So I've, I've spent an unbelievable amount of time and hours of text messages, direct messages uh, on social media. My, my team has been completely inundated and underwater on this project. You know, did a two and a half hour call with East York Cares on a Sunday night with the mayor and myself, you know, talking to them, countless site visits and pushing staff to deliver a better project. Um, because as a planner, you know, why are we accepting a substandard building that is going to be here in perpetuity um, versus anything that we would ask from anybody else? You know, like this originally came out with no parking and it's like, oh, staff will take transit. Well, like if you looked at where the site is and if we're going to have 24-7 support services and someone starts a shift at midnight, like how are they going to get there? And this is already a really parking constrained neighborhood and we're taking away the, the surface parking lot. So like let's put some parking spots on the site. Um, you know, the garbage, uh, the waste disposal was outside of the building. Like we would never accept that on any other project. So like bring it inside. So who, sorry, who, who, who did it? Who did this? Like, what is the yeah, building? So it's a it's a it's a it's modular a federally, federally it, run program. It's federal state. dollars. But who's the builder? Like, who's actually physically building? Are they? Uh, they it? are prefab modular units. They're built out in uh, Grimsby. Okay, or, I get that. But who yeah. puts them together? Who's running the project? Quote unquote. So the so the city or the yeah the housing secretariat. So it comes from the housing secretariat, and here's where we have it goes back to, and you see it all over the city and all over the bureaucracy, the different silos and people are very focused on their one thing. So for, you know, our, our housing secretariat, we're in a housing crisis. Um, you know, we have people living in parks. We need to give them the dignity of a roof over their head and a front door and the support so that they can be successful. All of that applies. All of that is very important. They are singularly focused on a thousand units. It's like we must deliver a thousand units and we have these federal deadlines. Everything else, you know, from a planning perspective or from a community perspective Got or a it. parks perspective, that's not their concern. That's care. sort of and so we lose our funding if we don't build the thousand units. Yeah. So, so but how? But how? Who? Who passed it? I mean, why wouldn't it go through the same process? I guess that's what you're asking or saying. Well, and and so you know, myself and Councillor Fillion, who's uh, who's been dealing with one in Willowdale, uh, you know, we we've had to roll up our sleeves and and be extremely hands on. And again, this was not something I had budgeted in my work program on things I was going to do this spring right. uh, or staff time. It's it's a tremendous heavy lift, and you're carrying a lot of water. And uh, you know, there are people who will will never get over this. There are people who uh, moved out of the neighborhood, and people literally say, like, you know, I, oh, I'm going to have to sell my house, etc. Uh, you hear that all the time. People actually did. Yeah. Now, the good thing is we have a proof point that projects like this don't tank property values as, as you know, they're all trading for over a million bucks. Um, right. So, but the point is, it's a, it's extremely contentious, and you don't want to have projects where people feel like they have to literally move out of the neighborhood. I don't think that that's a good outcome. And I think the way that we do this needs to be more thoughtful, more, um, you know, we have to be steadfast in our commitment to deliver supportive housing. Like we absolutely have to. And in fact, we've spent too much time building shelters and not enough time building housing. But hmm. Uh, the line. way that we do it matters. And if you have a guy like myself who's extremely supportive of these sort of things, you know, raising questions and concerns and getting annihilated by the community, 
my other colleagues who are perhaps a bit more trepid on these files, they're going to see that and say, shit, you know, no thanks. And take a big pass on that. And, and then you lose the will of council. So there is an onus on city staff and to make sure that, that we do a better job, that we hold ourselves to the same standards we hold anybody else to, and that we deliver these in a way that, you know, we can navigate the change in the community and the opposition that will always be there, but do it in a factual, responsible way. A lot of people, inherently just have questions they're not so opposed Mm -hmm. they just have questions that of course anybody would have when something like this comes forward but you need to you need to work with them and bring them on side so that this thing can be success and 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 if we can't do that it's going to be really hard to to roll the balance of these out across the city of toronto and and they're coming everywhere it goes back to my earlier question like the, the the integration between the private and public sector if they could communicate and get along and work together in a more cohesive fashion. I don't know. It just seems like, you know, like the, the, the public sector goes by the beat of their own drum and, and the private sector developers call them, you know, they've figured out a formula to make quote unquote money. Like that's what they do and they're very efficient and they've got a good team and they're focused and they know how to navigate the process or, and, and the system. So how do you, you know, how do you, how do you integrate the two and, you know, why, you know, maybe there's a way going forward that there is a, you know, a private company that does this work on behalf of the city, but, you know, they get, they get some, you know, they get paid and they get, you know, compensated properly or incentivized properly. Just to me, that seems like the natural solution, but actually marrying those two together, I don't know, maybe it's a pipe dream. I don't know. It's a a complicated process, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I park at that parking lot, you know, when I take my kid to baseball and it's funny, I asked him, uh, I asked him, what what, what do you think? He's like, well, keep parking on half the site and the, and the rest for affordable housing. That was his, that was his solution, but we want to be respectful of your time. We know that you got, uh, got another meeting to go to end it off. One more question. One more question. Really important because I, I know that this is a really hot topic and everybody's asking about it. It's sort of like the uh, the biggest un- unknown or uncertainty in the industry, and it relates around inclusionary zoning. And um, I guess your your opinion on inclusionary zoning, the way it's being rolled out, has been questioned in terms of the again involvement between the city and and the developers working together to come up with what it, it should look like. It's you know it's like it seems like the pendulum has swung totally in one direction. Um, it's worked in other cities, but the way that it sounds like we're implementing in this city, you question whether those case studies were really studied. Um, anyway, just curious on your thoughts. What do you think about it? Is it going to work? How's it going to work out? Or, or is it just going to cause more problems? I think it's essential going forward in a city like Toronto, where we have such an affordability crisis across the spectrum. You know, like obviously folks living in parks, shelters, respite, but also just, you know, folks like a lot of our friends who you know have a what you'd call historically a good middle class job uh, but can't find a place to rent in a rental market where you have less than one percent vacancy and uh, you know the idea of coming up with 20 percent down on a you know million dollar plus home is is you know just just a pipe dream so I think inclusionary zoning in a market like Toronto is essential I think that we can come up with a number that works for both the industry and and the city um, and you know Absent that, we are going to go further and further down this road of, you know, growing inequity. And, and I think fundamentally a city that, you know, has extreme inequity is, is a city that's not sustainable. So I want folks to be able to live in, in Toronto uh, if, if they want to be here. And part of that is inclusionary zoning. And certainly I, I think on a lot of these big projects, you know, the burden of that 
subsidy can be carried. Um, and I think the market has shown that, um, you know, there's, there's definitely, um, this is what's interesting is, is folks don't understand when I talk to community about affordability, the cross subsidy nature, like, yeah, sure. You know, timeline delays, more process, you know, more section 37, all that stuff ultimately gets passed on to, uh, the consumer. It gets flown through the project. So, you know, there's a disconnect and a misunderstanding there that doesn't actually help housing affordability writ large. And that's why I think if we have clarity and consistency on the process and when somebody is acquiring a site and making that investment and they know, you know, have a better understanding of, you know, what is going to be asked of them, when they're making that offer and, and tying up the land and costing it out going forward, I think what you need is the certainty. And there's a lot of trepidation right now because you don't know how those regs are going to land. And, you know, maybe you bought the land a year or two ago and or you four. weren't factoring in. Yeah, or, or <laughs> four. You weren't factoring this in. But right. I think it has to happen. I think that the development community, and this is probably not a popular take on this podcast, but, you know, there's a shared responsibility as all of us back to city builders and making sure that we're building a city where there are housing options for everybody here. There's always going to be market stuff and the market will do what it, what it needs to do, but we can't just rely on the market to, uh, to make sure that we have housing options for everybody. Two two things to take away and do what you want with them. This is just my, my take on what's going to happen. And there's, there's a variety of different opinions on, on this, but number one, I think you need to have your application in by the end of this year, roughly right. I think they may have extended it to the end of February or March. So there's an, an absolute, influx of applications in the city right now, but they're bad applications. They're not thought out. They're not thorough. They don't have the proper planning that should go into them. And I think that's going to cause a huge block. I know it's going to cause a huge backlog in the city and everyone I've talked to has already seen it. You have unknown developers or rookie developers coming out who bought sites and they're just jamming applications into the city. So that's one thing. It's it's going to, anyways, I don't know what do what you want with that. The second thing, and this is where my fear is, is like you said, everything ultimately gets passed on to the end user, the end buyer. So what's going to happen is, okay, you got to have 15 or 20% of the units in your building be affordable. So who's going to pay for the lost revenue? It's the other 80%. So the actual quote unquote market units are going to go from 1200 bucks a foot to 14 or 1600 bucks a foot to offset the fact that you have to have this occlusionary zoning. And to me, when I look at it, for, you know, just you know, from thirty thousand feet, it may solve one problem, but it's going to cause another problem. Yeah, the fund, I mean, I've I've always been a supporter of afford, of inclusionary zoning, but in one where there's a an equitable trade off, right? So if you're going to increase my costs as a developer by adding these units, well, you need to give me two more floors or four more floors or increase exactly. the speed that you approval. Yeah. Or in best case scenario, you literally just pay for the units. You pay for the shells, you go in, you finish them the way that you, you want, or you, we have uh, the developer finish it at a you know a lower level of interior finish than the, than the market units because you know two things happen. Either the costs get passed on and the other 80 or 90% of the units increase in value, or what's going to happen in a lot of cases, which which is most disappointing is some of these sites just don't work anymore because even uh, you, cause you can't no, no longer pass those costs off. And obviously the, there's the other economic theory that you now pay less for land, but in a lot of well, areas, everybody's saying it's in a lot happen, of areas, there is no room for but, it to go down no, farther but, because but it makes more it. sense for that land to be uh, think, no, retail no, plaza for the, the owner than it does is, to no, sell this is what's going to happen. It's all, and I, this is what my fear is, is that there's, this is what I debate with some of my partners and friends and, and colleagues is that there's going to be no land sales for the next 
I say one or two, but a lot of people are saying four years, because if you have, if you've owned your piece of land for 20 years in your head right now, it's worth $20 million, call it right. Inclusionary zoning comes in on January 1st next year. Are you all of a sudden going to think your piece of land is worth 15? No, like you're not, you're not going to, you, you're like, I'll just wait. You know, you're 55 years old. I'm not, I, I have my number. It's in my head. It's $20 million. It was $20 million in 2021. Now all of a sudden you think I give a shit about inclusionary zoning. <laughs> like, I don't care. My land is still worth $20 million. Yeah. So there's going to be every, every developer is, is fearful that there's going to be no transactions and, and therefore we have this influx in, of, of submissions now, and there's going to be nothing for like two years to see what happens, maybe three. And in my opinion, again, like we have a huge supply issue and this is just going to affect the supply chain. So I am, again, I'm all for affordable housing and inclusionary zoning in, in the right ways. Um, I'm all for, you know, we do a lot of work with, with homeless, like, I mean, homelessness is a huge issue here. We do a lot of work with a number of different shelters and, you know, the goal of eradicating poverty is, is sort of like one of our values as an organization. I believe personally, as much as I do, I guess, corporately in, in that value. But when I look at this, I'm just like, I just, I like the idea, but I don't, I'm fearful that it's not going to solve the problem and it's going to cause more problems. So, um, I don't know. There, there are almost zero policy decisions I think that can be implemented or enacted without without consequences. So everything is is connected, and you know, a communication problem. You know, I have a housing now site, so we have the Trenton modular site, which isn't going well in the north end of the ward, and then we have a housing now site on Queen Street, um, and you know, it's uh, some density on the back end of the site towards Eastern. I think it's 17 stories uh, and, and tapers down to Queen Street. And the amount of community backlash on that is uh, is remarkable. Uh, ads in the paper, signs up on the street poles, lawn signs, op-eds. Op-eds, they call yeah, you Mr. It, Mr. High-Rise. Right, right. What's and, op-eds? Yeah. And, uh. and so, <laughs> well, no. but, but the point an, is... An opinion and, editorial. And, and people oh. just say to me, well, why don't you just build six stories, uh, 100% affordable? <sighs> and, and we're trying for the first Housing Now project that would be 50% affordable and all rental. That's, that's the goal here. And so people, there's a fundamental disconnect and, and a lack of understanding that it is a cross-subsidy model. And if we were Austria and 3% of our national GDP went to building affordable or social housing, you know, that would be fantastic. But that's not the world that we're living in here in Toronto. And so, yeah, there are, there are consequences with all these policy decisions and trade-offs, and that's why it has to be done, you know, in consultation with all the different stakeholders in a really thoughtful way. Because the last thing you want is unintended consequences that, you know, uh, the cure is worse than the than the disease. And so we gotta we gotta be smart and thoughtful about it. But yes, we have to do that, it. That's a good way to end off the yeah. questions. We, yeah. we, 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 we don't want you to have to speed too much on your bike to go to your your, <laughs> la, your next meeting. So uh, and get you and get a ticket. All so. of a sudden, <laughs> the, po- the podcast is gonna have to pay for the, the yeah oh, yeah. We will we'll cover the ticket. So we do a little <laughs> rapid fire at the end. Uh, yes, no, maybe you know. Know, five ten words uh, max. You can feel free to say no comment if if we ask you no, something that's uh, that's. No uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, you want you go first. All right, um, rent control at one percent, good or bad? Uh, there's a number that that can work for everybody, and we have to have it. Five percent. Okay, uh, a lot of controversy lately about trucks. Do you think trucks should be banned for all people that don't work in construction in Toronto? 
No, no, that's that's swinging a sledgehammer. That we need better road design that encourages safer vehicle travel. In a six-story maximum building height in the beach. Oh, sorry, is is a six-story maximum building height in the beach? Good planning. <laughs> I think we got, we covered yeah, that one a little bit. Yeah, depends on the site. Depends on the context. Oh, this is a good one. Should we defund the police? I voted to defund, and I vote for reform. So I oh. think we I think we need big changes there. Yeah, a lot of money. A lot of our budget spent on uh, Should the city of Toronto offer free daycare? Uh, We need to get people back to work. Childcare is an essential part of that. Uh, I don't think that the the property tax base is the best place to to pay for it, but uh, we definitely need more childcare options. Is Gord Perks as weird in person as he is online? Gord Perks is very very smart and thoughtful uh, colleague of mine. Uh, we don't always line up and agree on everything, but he, he is definitely somebody who is uh, a bright, shining light uh, at City Hall. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Steve? Should Airbnb be completely banned? You know, I, I don't think so, uh, but certainly it's, it's talking about unintended consequences. We've certainly seen that uh, with Airbnb. Okay. How about uh, who would win in an arm wrestling match, you or Nathaniel Erskine-Smith? Uh, I'm going to have to say Nate. I have one child. He has two. So dad's strength goes to Nate. I put my money on Nate. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, no, I was going to make some comment about NDPs, but I did vote for Nathaniel. He seems like a cool guy. So he, assume- and he's also, he's also a liberal. He, he changed? He, yeah, he's a, no, he's always been a member of the liberal party. Oh, okay. Well. I guess I'm. Uh, I, I haven't been paying attention to who I'm voting for. Going back to uh, you, you just had a child. Um, six months. Six months today. Six months today. Congratulations. How old will your child be when the new downtown relief line subway line be built? <laughs> no, no comment. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> He'll definitely be old enough to ride it on his own. That's for sure. Um, should we have food trucks in the beaches? You know, I uh, always cuts up against uh, lots of the local restaurants and entrepreneurs that we have there. But uh, I think f- food trucks are fun and a lot of creativity in the, the culinary scene in the food trucks. So uh, I like food trucks. But, you know, obviously there's there's folks on Queen Street that have lots of great offerings for people to eat out at, too. Interesting. What That's team will answer. win a championship next? The Toronto Maple Leafs or the Toronto Raptors? Maple Leafs. Okay, yep, let me 2022. Throw, let me throw the Jays in there too. <laughs> uh, uh, this is it, 2022. This I is like the you. One. I like yeah. this. I'm, I'm <laughs> all prediction. No, I'm 2023 Jays and Leafs, Stanley Cup and okay. World Series. All right. Last question. Do you have any plans to be the mayor of Toronto? I just have to get through the next year, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to run for office again in, in beautiful Beaches, East York, and uh, just try and hang on day by day. Awesome. Awesome. So if someone wants to uh, uh, find you online, what, what's the, you know, the Facebook, the website, TikTok, what do you, what, what do you got going there? I just punch it into the Google, Instagram, Bradford Grams, Twitter, uh, you know, I'm on there, but try and keep my head down. Facebook, find me in the community groups. Nice, I'm, I'm nice. I did. I did look at your, your your Facebook page to to generate some of the comments. You're very very active, keeping us all aware of of, of what's happening. So, Brad, you are uh, you're a very intentional guy. You are well spoken and uh, thorough. You obviously care very much about your community, and uh, I think the city is in good hands. And your ward definitely is in good hands with uh, you at the rain. So, thank you for all the work you do, and uh, thanks for being on the show. 
Thanks it's for been coming. great uh, great to be with you guys and uh, next time we'll get you out on the bike we'll have some fun <laughs> <laughs> deal we'll, we'll right. bike to the we'll bike to the microbreweries and, and I'm buying <laughs> beautiful <laughs> okay. thanks guys All right, take thanks. care thank you